Well, good morning. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We will ambitiously but unavoidably be reading the first 12 verses. Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion and order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul's main point is that the day of the Lord, excuse me, that because the day of the Lord must be preceded by certain events, the Thessalonians should not be shaken by claims that it has already occurred. Because the day of the Lord has to be preceded by certain events, the Thessalonians should not be shaken by claims that it has already occurred. I think I've laid out my baseball paradigm for sermon quality before, uh, and, and I hope to be a pastor who kind of hits doubles. You know, I'm not talented enough to hit triples regularly, and certainly not home run sermons. This is one of those texts where you hope you get hit with the pitch and walked to first <laughs> base. Uh, it is, on all, by all accounts, one of the most challenging passages in the whole Bible. And I want to unpack it together this morning by asking and then attempting to answer four questions. And here are the four questions. What is the rebellion? Who is the man of lawlessness? Who or what is the restrainer? And how do we harmonize these necessary precursors with the imminent expectation of Christ's return? Certainly have my work cut out for me. May the Lord give grace. Let's, let's get into it. What is the rebellion? Paul introduces the rebellion for a practical purpose to help the Thessalonians not be rattled or shaken by this suggestion that the day of the Lord has already come. And if 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 1 has not made clear, the day of the Lord being discussed here is the parousia, the final climactic coming of Christ where righteous judgment will be administered. And I think this is, this is certainly very important to understanding the passage properly. It seems to me exceedingly obvious, and yet there are some who hold to a different eschatology who would say that the day of the Lord being discussed here is actually something like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That these things are not necessarily talking about the end. And here's their pushback. How could the Thessalonians have possibly thought the day of the Lord would come if they weren't in glorified resurrection bodies and their friends weren't risen in Christ and they hadn't been caught up to meet God in the air? It's like... That can't be what they're talking about. They know they don't have glorified bodies. Their friends who have died in Christ are not raised from the dead. They have to be talking about something different. The day of the Lord here must be different than the day of the Lord in the last three chapters. But part of the answer to why they are rattled seems to be present in verse 2. It says, uh, 
not to, well, let me just read verse 1 as well. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, again, the end, uh, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly to, uh, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Apparently, it had been communicated to them in a way that presumed authority, perhaps a spirit of prophecy that he just said, don't despise in 1 Thessalonians 5, or a letter that was pretending to be from him that the day of the Lord uh, had come, and in a sense that it caused them to doubt or rethink or reinterpret, perhaps, what Paul had taught them on his original visit and what he had said in their first letter. According to the vast majority of scholars, it resulted in them understanding the day of the Lord not as a singular event, but as kind of a complex series of events, and the coming of Christ was just one part of that complex series of events. So, so understood, they would take it to mean that the series of events connected with the final day have begun, and you've missed it. These final things are about to occur, and you've been aloof to those things. And you could see how someone could be rattled by that. I think something like that is what we're dealing with. Uh, I believe that's, that that is far more plausible from a hermeneutical standpoint, interpretive standpoint, than suggesting that the day of the Lord here somehow now refers to something that hasn't been discussed in the last uh, three chapters. Certainly, I think we stand on good grounds affirming that. Now, as I mentioned, Paul brings up the rebellion for a pastoral purpose. Uh, it is evidence that the day of the Lord has not yet come so that they will not be deceived. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That word translated rebellion is literally apostasy. The falling away. The falling away. What does it refer to though? There are two main lines of thinking here. Okay, One is it refers to something that is primarily political or militaristic. This is how the word was used in some of the secular Greek writings. It enjoys one usage in the Septuagint. Um, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, but aside from not enjoying very much support uh, in the Septuagint, or from hard, hardly any support from the Second Temple Jewish writings, apostasy, uh, apostasy is understood as religious and spiritual in these other texts that are more relevant. Um, the view suffers from lacking, additionally, any coherent object. If it's a political or militaristic rebellion in mind here, like against who? Against what? The object seems to be lacking. Um, in the context of Second Thessalonians 2, the rebellion is closely tied with lawlessness. A man of lawlessness, opposition to God, opposition to holiness, and the deception of those who are perishing, verses 9 and 10. That's how the rebellion is cast. In other words, the apostasy is understood as this, is better understood not as some secular or militaristic or political movement, but some kind of religious or spiritual falling away. Falling away, particularly of those who may claim to be Christians. Remember Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name perform miracles and cast out demons, all the rest? And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers or workers of lawlessness. All of the againstness in the passage is against God and godliness. Having said that, we shouldn't divorce the two totally as though a large-scale disobedience to God and deception would somehow not slip into a social life or into politics. Powerful ideas and powerful people always do. But insofar as politics or armies or whatever are involved, they will be in the service of of something, of a movement that is primarily understood as opposition to God. So Paul says, do not be shaken. Before the day of the Lord comes, there will be a significant apostasy, a significant falling away of pseudo-Christians, pseudo-religious people who believe that because of their faith, they have identified the true God. This man of lawlessness. The second thing that must emerge before the day of the Lord, the subject of our second question, who, who is the man of lawlessness? He is, in a word, 
Satan's Superman. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of God, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He's given four designations here. The antinomian, anomia technically, against law, the son of perdition or destruction, the opposer and the exalter. So in order, this man will oppose, have an utter disregard for God's law. Because God's law includes submission to the governing authorities, we might reasonably conclude any law at all. He is the quintessential antinomian. He answers to no one but himself. Number two, he is the son of destruction. This is a Hebraism, not talking about what he's going to bring but it's talking about his end. And so, therefore, this designation points us down to verse 8 in the passage. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He's a son of destruction. Third, he is the opposer. He will reject, he will repel any other candidates for worship. Idols or the true God himself, finally, because number four, he is the exalter. He will exalt himself to the point where he proclaims himself to be God. The last part of verse four. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there has been some discussion of the nature of the temple here. Does that mean that the temple in Jerusalem will have to be rebuilt in order for this to come true? And is the man of lawlessness really going to make Jerusalem the center of his activities? It's not clear why he would. Uh, the, the, the temple, however, at Jerusalem was desecrated multiple times before its destruction in 70 AD. The most famous is when King Antiochus IV um, who demanded they call him Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes is what sometimes you'll read his name as, which is God manifest, presumptuous, I would say. Uh, in 168, plunders the Jerusalem temple, abolishes sacrifices to God, and in the sanctuary offers a pig, an unclean animal, on an altar to Zeus in the temple. It's a prototypical kind of precursor for opposition to God that Jesus himself uses in anticipation of another forthcoming abomination in the Olivet Discourse. So, so the desecration of the temple was a recurring theme that pointed to a climactic kind of abomination and exaltation to the status of God. And I would suggest that that's what's being referenced here. Okay, It's not a literal temple, not least because... Uh, we don't expect him to sit down on a chair either, okay, when he takes his seat in any particular place. Um, I. Howard Marshall speaks for most commentators here, and, I, and certainly myself. He says, Paul was using a well-known motif metaphorically and typologically, ta uh, taking up a motif derived from Ezekiel and Daniel and given concrete illustration in previous desecrations of the Jewish temple, both actual and attempted. He has used this language to portray the character of the culminating manifestation of evil that opposes and presumes to replace God in the world. I think that's what's, what, what is going on here. Notice that this man is depicted as the mirror image of Christ, the evil mirror image. 2 Thessalonians 1, Christ is revealed. 2 Thessalonians 2, man of lawlessness is revealed. 2 Thessalonians 1, Christ will come in might and power. 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness will come with all power and wonders. Look down to verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. 2 Thessalonians 1, Christ is the embodiment of justice. 2 Thessalonians 2, man of lawlessness is the uh, embodiment of injustice. First, 2 Thessalonians 1, Christ is believed upon because the testimony is true. 2 Thessalonians 2, the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness who is, is believed upon because of deception, verse 10. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing, God sends them a strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false. And so while it might be true that John is the only biblical author that explicitly uses the term antichrist, it is it's obvious why everyone rightly understands the man of lawlessness to be the antichrist. So who is the antichrist? Many people have tried to identify this climactic end-time antichrist in their time. Uh, Nero, the Pope, Hitler, Stalin, and insofar as people have tried to identify the climactic Antichrist, uh, they have all been mistaken. However, because the power of the man of lawlessness is already present in mystery form, verse 4, a concept to which we are going to return, John can say in 1 John 2 that you have heard Antichrist is coming, but now Antichrists have already come. The people who deny that Jesus is Lord, deny the Father. Therefore, we know it's the final hour. So just like the desecrations of the temple can be seen as these prototypical events pointing us towards an ultimate abomination that is going to happen, an ultimate exaltation against God, um, so too there are those, because they oppose Jesus, don't confess Him as Lord, uh, can be seen as prototypical antichrists that anticipate this final man of lawlessness. Um, however, I will say this. If you look at how John positions the prototypical Antichrist in 1 John 2.18 and 19, it's at least very reasonable to expect that this man of lawlessness will emerge from the visible church. Listen to this in context, starting in 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so do now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They, who is they? The Antichrist that, they just, that he just mentioned. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The prototypical Antichrists come out of the church, even though he says they were never really a part of us. And so it would certainly stand to reason, although I don't, I'm not saying it with certainty, it certainly stands to reason if the prototypical Antichrists come out of the church, that the culminating climactic Antichrist does so as well. And it would make sense if he was claiming to be God. And so I think even looking back in history, people trying to identify the man of lawlessness with pagan, secular, atheistic regimes and rulers and influencers, those were probably off base to begin with. I, I, I do tend to think that the, this man of lawlessness will come out of the visible church. Who is it then? Who is the man of lawlessness, Tyler? I would suggest that to ask the question is to misunderstand. Because the man of lawlessness emerges in mystery form, and there's an already not yet dynamic where his influence is active, but his person is concealed for now, and that no one will be able to point to any specific individual, at, le at the very least until the restrainer stands aside, giving rise to the apostasy, the rebellion, out of which this man will emerge, wickedly opposing God and deceiving his people, okay? So that's, that's, that's what I believe about the man of lawlessness. Then that leads to the third question. Who or what is the restrainer? Verses 6 and 7. And you know now what is restraining him, excuse me, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery, there's that mystery, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So let me point out, first of all, that we don't have to be able to identify precisely who or what the restrainer is in order to appreciate the role the restrainer is playing here. Clearly, what's happening is the rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness that will precede the day of the Lord haven't happened yet because there is a restraining force restraining those things from occurring at, one, at some point, that restrainer will move out of the way and then the rebellion will occur and there will be the man of lawlessness. Um, but the, even though the Thessalonians almost certainly knew who he was talking about, we do not. We don't have those details. Okay? Notice he says, you know, verse 5. Do you not remember that when I told you I was with you these things. He, he, he's saying, when I was with you, I talked with you about these things. We don't have that backstory. We just have this, another point that we'll return to later. 
But he says about the restrainer, you know who is restraining him now. One commentator says that now the speculation over the identity of the restrainer has eclipsed speculation over the identity of Antichrist himself. I, I, I agree. There are a whole host of suggestions. What is preventing this rebellion? What is preventing the spiritual falling away, the darkness taking over in some sense? Multiple options. Let me give you some of them so you understand the lay of the land. One, the Roman government, the Roman Empire, and the emperor himself. Uh, two, God, through the Holy Spirit in the church. That is what it's doing, the restraining. The state and the government as ministers uh, of God, punishing evil and restraining uh, punish God, punishing evil, restraining evil. And then another suggestion is Paul and his preaching of the gospel understood himself to be the one who is restraining. There's a lot of things that could be said about each of these options. Let me just try to categorically rule some of them out. First, because the nature of lawlessness that's being restrained by the restrainer, I've already sought to argue, is primarily anti-God. It's, it's, it's a spiritual apostasy. That's what the nature of the rebellion is. It seems odd that the restrainer would be the Roman Empire, um, which didn't restrain opposition to Jesus Christ or Yahweh at all, especially that, because there was literally an imperial cult. It's hard to imagine saying that that's the person really holding the line for godliness, uh, the, the, the Roman Empire. And despite exhortations to honor the emperor, submit to governing authorities, there's not a spiritually favorable view in the New Testament um, cast over the Roman Empire, certainly the conduct of the emperor himself. Also, it probably has not escaped your notice that the Roman Empire is out of the way and the day of the Lord has not happened. Probably not the most compelling candidate. What about, the, 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 similarly, there, the general government view, uh, I think is a little bit more plausible here on the basis of Romans 13, uh, punishing evildoers, the public ministry of justice. Um, but again, it struggles that because the government is not tasked with being the Christian police force. Um, the government is not tasked with making sure that no one is doing things that are anti-Christian. They aren't restraining that. Have you looked around you know, here recently? They're, they're not tasked with making sure that no one is opposing Jesus or Christian holiness or anything like that. Also, the singular masculine, the restrainer, communicated to the Thessalonians is much more likely a reference to an individual, a discrete thing or individual, uh, than it is a series of people or governments or regimes that would come centuries after them and be the collective of all those things, just called the restrainer. It's, it's just not as possible, but not as natural. What about Paul preaching the gospel as a minister? He is the restrainer. Well, the problem with this is the awkwardness of Paul cryptically referring to himself as the restrainer when he doesn't have a problem just identifying himself as I many times or we. It just seems very, very odd. Uh, but second, more importantly, is that Paul considered it a genuine possibility that he would actually be alive at the return of Christ. He considered that a genuine possibility. He didn't necessarily believe that was going to be the case, but that was an option. First Thessalonians 4, 5, we... We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's a similar thing going on in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul holds out the possibility that, hey, maybe he makes it to the last day. This has been observed by many theologians and, and students of Paul. But you can see the obvious problem with this, right? If the restrainer has to be out of the way before the rebellion and the man of lawlessness uh, can be revealed, and those things have to happen before the return of Christ, then Paul would have to be out of the way before that happens. So if he was the restrainer, he could be certain he would not be alive at the return of Christ because his death would be a necessary precursor to the precursors if he's the one doing the restraining. I hope that hope you follow that. I hope that makes sense. If he's doing the restraining, he's got to get out of the way first before the rebellion can even happen, and that happens before the day of the Lord. Therefore, he could be certain he wouldn't be around for it. And also, as it's likely not escaped your notice, Paul is now out of the way, at least from his earthly uh, ministry, preaching of the gospel, and the day of the Lord has not 
happen. What about the church and the Holy Spirit? The largest objection here is that the Holy Spirit and the church are never pictured as passing away or proactively moving out of the way to allow evil to emerge from inside the church. This is something that is an intentional action, and nowhere do we see a theology of the church moving out of the way in some sense so that evil can come about. Uh, Quite the opposite, Christ says that he's building his church, that he is sustaining his church to the end, and as the church plunders the gates of hell, that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So the idea that the restrainer itself, the restrainer has to be something that can get out of the way. Um, What exactly would that that mean? The church and the Holy Spirit get, get out of the way. It's just not entirely, it's just not entirely clear. Well, given that I don't think we must identify the restrainer, and given that I think uh, that there are some significant weaknesses of these views, maybe I should just say, I don't know, which on even days of the week is what I say. But if I had to step up to the roulette wheel of theology and place my bet, I would suggest to you that what is restraining the man of lawlessness, who is restraining this rebellion, is the archangel Michael. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, as we're turning to Daniel, uh, what you need to know about Daniel is the first half is narrative and the second part is confusing. And uh, now that you understand the book of Daniel, I can tell you that Daniel has multiple visions, many of which uh, refer to last things and are explicitly designated as such with phrases like time of the end, Daniel 8.17, days yet to come, latter days, Daniel 10.14, And that Daniel 10 through 12 is Daniel's final climactic vision in the book. And I want to call your attention to a few parts of it here. First part of Daniel chapter 10, he's sitting by the bank of the river uh, and uh, he sees this terrifying vision. The other guys don't see it, but they still get freaked out somehow. They run away. Daniel's left by himself. He loses all of his strength, literally passes out, falls down on his face, feels a hand touch him. And this incredible angelic kind of being speaks with him. And for our purposes in this exact moment, what is most interesting is a bit of autobiographical insight into a spiritual realm you and I cannot see, but is just as real as everything in this room. Listen to this little insight, starting in verse 12, Daniel chapter 10. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, not a physical human prince. This is an angelic rank. It's not the prince. It's not not, not the son of the king of Persia. The prince of the king of Persia withstood me 21 days. I'm trying to bring, I'm this heavenly messenger trying to bring you this message, but I was withstood by a territorial, uh, heavenly being that had uh, dominion over Persia, withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. And we move down a little bit and we figure out that this guy has actually got to get back in on the action. In verse 20, 21, after coming delivering this message, he says, Then he said, Do you know I have come to you, but now I will return to the fight? against the prince of Persia. We find out there's, he's gonna, there's gonna be a double team. Behold, the prince, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Oh no, what's going to happen? Who's going to show up? But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except, against these except Michael, your prince, the prince of the Jewish people, the protector of their ter- Greece has a territory, Persia territory. Michael is cast as the prince of 
those people. In chapter 11, we hear about uh, wars. We hear about kingdoms rising and falling. And then when we get down to verse 36, we read about uh, a, a prophecy that is fulfilled initially, but not, it was fulfilled truly, but not fully, by the instance with the Antiochus Epiphanes that I talked about earlier. Read with me 36 and 37. This king is going to arise. It says, The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Does that, does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar to me. It sounds familiar to me. And then finally, we jump down to chapter 12, the verses that we heard read. What happens here at that time shall arise or shall step aside, depending on how you translate it. Who? Michael. And what happens? At that time shall arise Michael. Michael will get up from his post. The great prince who has charge over your people. And when he does that, there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So to help you see this, I've put it in a chart for you. Upper left, Daniel. Michael is opposing powerful spiritual forces and protecting his people from their effects. 2 Thessalonians 2, the restrainer is currently restraining and is now restraining the mystery and man of lawlessness. Back to the Daniel side. Michael will prevent, eventually, arise or stand aside from his present post. And then, 2 Thessalonians, the restrainer will get out of the way. Back in Daniel's side, when Michael arises or stands aside, an unprecedented time of trouble will occur. Daniel 12b, 12.1b. I think it says 12, 12. That's a, that's a mistake. It's, it's Daniel 12, 1b. In 2 Thessalonians, when the restrainer is removed, that's when the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Back to the Daniel side. After the time of trouble, the faithful will be delivered unto everlasting life and the faithless to everlasting shame and contempt. 2 Thessalonians, after the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness, God will save those who love the truth and kill the man of lawlessness and eternally condemn his followers. And so while I'm not betting the farm on it, because I don't have to, if I had to make a guess and I had to put the pieces together, I would suggest the Archangel Michael is the best candidate. Perhaps that's whose shout we hear about in 1 Thessalonians 4. The return of Christ will be accompanied by the shout of an archangel. It's not escape people's speculation that perhaps, perhaps this is Michael. Sought to answer the question, what is the rebellion? Who is the man of lawlessness? Who or what is the restrainer that will reveal them? And that leads me one, leaves me one more challenge. How do we harmonize these necessary precursors with the imminent expectation of Christ's return? In 1 Thessalonians 5, we read that believers, because they are of the day, are not going to be surprised that there is a return, but they will be surprised by the timing of that Return Or in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. It would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How do we square that with the reality that there are events that must occur and unless they do, the day of the Lord isn't happening. You can imagine someone saying, I understand the thief's coming and he's coming at night, but he's not coming this night. You know, I understand that the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night, but he's not coming this week. He's not coming this month because none of these things have happened. And Paul explicitly said these things have to happen in order for the, uh, unless these things don't happen, the day of the Lord isn't going to occur. So, in the providence of God, one of my mentors in seminary wrote specifically on this dilemma. And boy, was I very 
thankful for that as I was preparing this week in the, in the providence of God, looking back. He wrote specifically on this. So you have him to thank for the, uh, I'm modifying his solution a little bit. I'm beefing it up. But essentially, the credit goes to him. First of all, I want to reject out of hand the two most popular ways to resolve this tension. One is to simply say, yeah, of course, Jesus, Jesus couldn't come back tomorrow. He couldn't come back next week. He's not going to come back next month because none of these things can happen. That's just that to me totally guts all of the be prepared passages. It guts. I don't have to be prepared. I mean, yeah, when I, you know what? You know when I'll repent and believe the gospel? When I see someone doing magic tricks in a huge rebellion. Until then, I can live it up. Seems to gut the, the urgency that we see throughout the New Testament. The second is that Jesus could, in fact, come back at any second, uh, but, but, um, but that actually isn't the final climactic day of the Lord. This is a secret, hidden return of Christ that snatches the church off of the earth, which is understood to be the restrainer. And when the church is removed, that's when the rebellion happens. And that's when the Great Tribulation starts and the Antichrist is, uh, emerges. This would be the perspective of our pre-tribulational rapture dispensationalist brothers and sisters. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. It's the idea that you see teased out in the Left Behind series. Uh, neither one, for a variety of reasons, I think, does just justice to the text of the New Testament. My proposed solution has two parts, so to, to listen carefully, this is a very challenging tension to resolve, but um, I think that once we understand it in proper perspective, it, 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 does, it does dissolve. First, let's look at that, that uh, back, to, back with me to 2 Thessalonians, please, chapter, excuse me, verse 7. It says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That word mystery is a technical term in Paul. It's not a simple adjective. It's not like there's regular lawlessness, which is like looting and rioting, and there's mysterious lawlessness, which is like people with strange tinctures and, and, and praying prayers and floating around or something. It is a technical term, and most often, especially when it's associated with an Old Testament prophecy, refers to something that was announced, uh, and it was, an, it was announced, but its fulfillment was not what most people had been expecting. It was something that was hidden, but now revealed. And the way at which it has been revealed would not have necessarily been obvious to the original audience. That is, in most cases, how the Apostle Paul, likely pulling from Daniel chapter 2, we'd have a look at that, uses the word mystery in his letters. And notice that that is similar, but not identical, to the mysteries of the kingdom Jesus proclaims. Remember, he, he announces the kingdom in parabolic form, but the crowds can't understand it even though it's before them. They can't discern it. Who can? The disciples, because he specifically says he's revealing it to them. It isn't until Pentecost or everyone else it gets revealed to, and then uh, a couple thousand of them believe. And so what Paul's doing here is saying that the man of lawlessness and his effects are present in an already not yet kind of manner that parallels the kingdom of God by taking the prophecies concerning lawlessness and saying that they fall into this mystery category. And if you want to look, understand a biblical theology of mystery, I highly recommend, but not for the faint of heart, Hidden But Now Revealed by Greg Beal, A Biblical Theology of Mystery. He does a great job of unpacking a biblical theology of mystery. Um, but because lawlessness is already here in its mystery form, understood as, as a theological category, awaiting its full and final revelation with the embodied man of lawlessness, it's not entirely clear that you and I are in a position to identify precisely where or how the lawlessness presents itself, or how to distinguish this kind of eschatological lawlessness from just another church slipping into theological liberalism or professing Christians embracing false doctrines like they have for centuries. We, we watch, but we watch with uncertainty and perhaps even expectation that these things will look currently and be fulfilled ultimately in a manner we do not expect. As an example, consider John the Baptist. John the Baptist, on the basis of his understanding certainly of places like Malachi, the end of Malachi, uh, was expecting a Jesus bringing what? Wrath and fire 
judgment. And, and no one greater had been born from women of John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist, last Old Testament, I mean, John the Baptist was the man. And yet, John the Baptist is the one who even after baptizing Jesus is saying, sending his disciples to Jesus saying, are you, are you the guy? Like, is this, are you, you're the, the guy, the, the fire, the, the one who's bringing judgment to the house of of God, because it doesn't really seem like that's exactly what you're doing. He, he, he didn't quite understand that that prophecy, the, the vengeance-bringing Messiah, was being fulfilled in two stages, where the wrath of God, Romans 1, is currently being revealed against unrighteousness, but, but that culmination of that wrath is not yet revealed, that is waiting for consummation at a time later. Um, and, and, and so... Uh, Paul uses that technical term mystery to denote that something similar is going on with the revelation of lawlessness. As the parables of the kingdom were observed before the crowds, okay, but they weren't particular they weren't able to discern them, so lawlessness is being observed by us in a mystery form awaiting final fulfillment, a fulfillment that we uh, Following the prophetic paradigm, it may look very different than what you and I expect. Very, very different. Is this global or is it going to be local or regional? If it is global, will it look the same at every part of the globe? Will it last weeks or will it last years? Will everyone know at the same time, like when Jesus is revealed from heaven, or will people progressively come to know that there is such a rebellion? Um, will all Christians agree? that this is happening, or will there be discussion? Um, will the signs and wonders look closer to turning water into wine or to incredible psychological manipulation and, or solving seemingly intractable uh, problems like world hunger? The answer is, we just don't know. Because it doesn't say. Remember Joel's prophecy fulfilled at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It spoke of a day characterized by wonders in the sky and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. And where do we find that fulfilled in? The giving of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit. It was declared, but it was declared in a form that most people, including you and I, if you were just reading the Bible straight through, when you got to that passage, like, uh, I was thinking that passage was about the end of the world or something. I mean, like fire and smoke and everything. And here we have it fulfilled at Pentecost. It was, it was declared in mystery form. So too lawlessness is before us in mystery form, waiting for its final revelation that may significantly differ in details from our expectations. So our posture in identifying this lawlessness as a result will likely be like John the Baptist's uncertainty towards the fulfillment he was looking for. He knew it was coming, he knew he was in the right place, but yet, nevertheless, he still said, is this, is this it? Are you sure this is it? Because it didn't match his expectations. That's the first part of the solution, okay? Biblical theology of mystery. Second part is a theology of Scripture itself as living and active. Understood to mean that Scripture itself not merely the stories or the theological truths, but Scripture as an artifact here, an inspired artifact, affects believers. So to get our hands around this distinction, you have to remember that 2 Thessalonians communicates something to us different than it communicated to the Thessalonians. You say, Tyler, wait a second, that sounds like bad hermeneutical principle. What, you, what is that? Well, um, the thing is, when we read verse 5, for example, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Well, guess what? We all understand what that sentence means, but we weren't there for these things. We weren't there for Paul's theology lecture. We weren't there for his workshop discussions. And so we don't know the content of what he's referring to. When he says, you know what's restraining him now, we understand what that sentence means, but we don't know what the reference to that is because we weren't there in Thessalonica. Okay, They were given specific information, told specific references. But God in His sovereignty and giving us the inspired Scripture intentionally left that part out. And everyone doing business with this text and text like it has to ask why. Why? 
If Paul was giving them practical, detailed, identifiable comfort that presupposed background familiarity with his in-person teaching, why aren't we given that information in Scripture so that we could have the same understanding? And what I'm going to... Do you feel, you feel the tension there, right? There's a difference. What I'm going to suggest is in accordance with this active view of Scripture is that, is that Scripture is giving us apparently conflicting signs and timelines for a very specific purpose. And that is, that is twofold purpose, to inform us so that we will not be deceived, but to inform us in a manner so that we are always prepared. George Ladd, theological giant of the 20th century, sums it up this way regarding the same dynamic in the Gospels. He says, this is where the Gospels leave us, anticipating an imminent event and yet unable to date its coming. Logically, this may appear contradictory, but it is a tension with an ethical purpose to make date-setting impossible and therefore to demand constant readiness. A parallel example of how Scripture works, I would say, would be the warnings of Scripture of, of, about unfaithfulness given towards eternally secure believers. And you might ask, well, if a believer is secure in Christ because God's sovereign in salvation, why are there warnings given to believers. And what I would say, and I will tease out further in our upcoming Sunday School series, is that the warnings of Scripture themselves are part of how God accomplishes Christian endurance. Just like the skull and crossbones label on a bottle of poison protects people from drinking it. It actually plays a role, part of a causal role in affecting, uh, protecting people from consuming it. So similarly, the warnings play an effective role. They play a part of how the Holy Spirit preserves the saints. In the new covenant, unlike the old, everyone heeds the warnings and receives eternal life. The warnings are an effective part of Christian endurance. So similarly, we're told that end-time lawlessness is here in an already-not-yet mystery form, which implies that the revelation of these things, okay, the, the rebellion, the man of lawlessness, will very likely not look like we have in mind, any more than Christ's first coming looked like what John had in mind, or the folks in Pentecost had in mind with Joel's prophecy that had been fulfilled by the Holy Spirit. In sum, God and His sovereignty has crafted the, the Scripture, the normative and authoritative source of divine instruction and edification for the church throughout the ages with a very specific purpose, and that is a different purpose than the in-person teaching of Paul at Thessalonica which has not been so preserved for us. So in light of a biblical theology of mystery and an active understanding of Scripture, I leave you with this. Regarding the timing and nature of prophesied last things, the twofold divinely intended purpose for the tensions present in Scripture is one, to communicate the precursors to the end so that we might not be deceived, but two, to reveal them historically in a mystery form whose fulfillment may not match our expectations, so that in our lack of certainty, we will always be prepared. Twofold, to communicate the precursor so that we might not be deceived, but to reveal them historically in mystery form whose fulfillment may not match our expectations, so that we will always be prepared. What is the rebellion? Who is the man of lawlessness? Who or what is the restrainer? How do we harmonize? In light of those things, what can be said very briefly in application? One would be to be open to the reality of real spiritual battles progressing before us in a manner we may not expect. We might think it looks like this, but in fact, it is something else, more nefarious. It, could it be that it is the lawless, this kind of lawlessness in mystery form? I'm suggesting that, yes, it could be that we need to be on guard so that we are not deceived. But we will never be certain, so we must always be prepared. Be open to the reality of a spiritual realm that the references in Daniel to Michael, for all honest, sound to us like something out of a fantasy movie. 
it is just not the plane of existence that we, uh, that we operate on. It's not where we get our commands. It's not the, but there is a real battle raging of principalities and rulers. There is really, really something going on. We need to be open to the reality of spiritual warfare and open to the reality that it may look much different than we think it looks or that it's how it's been portrayed in movies. What else? I would say we need to hold fast to the connection between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That is to say, correct belief and correct practice. If you look down at the end of the passage, look how close of a tie there is. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but they believed falsehood. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. See, those of you who weren't looking down, you got tricked. Then they all condemned who did not believe the truth, but what's cast as the opposite of believing the truth? Taking pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, there is a tight connection between belief and action. Belief and holiness. Truth matters. And truth is worth fighting for. And holiness does not parade on the foundation, does not go forward in our lives on the basis and foundation of feelings or culture, but truth. And so the truth is something we must guard and must fight for. And finally, simply but wondrously, remember that because of what is pictured here, verse 8, and the lawless one will be revealed and the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Remember that no matter how bad things get, the lamb wins. The lamb wins. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would make us a people prepared and aware, that you would lead us into a knowledge of the truth, that you would hold us fast according to your word, Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us eyes to see and give us the courage to stand. In Jesus' name, amen.